Well, good morning, each one of you. Um, God's brought us here safe and sound, and I don't believe it's by coincidence that any of you are here. Uh, in God's sovereign grace and His His desire, His will, His love that we are here, we're alive and well, and we're worshiping God together, and what a wonderful thing that is, truly. And um, I'm just thankful to be here to uh, open the Word of God and to preach His truth, and I... You know, the preacher really is a servant in this way to, to draw our attention to the Word, to exalt God, and to bring us to a greater understanding of His Word. And it doesn't necessarily mean the preacher is the, the smartest one or... You know, the <laughs> definitely not in this case. Uh, but I, I want to be I want to be a servant today, and so I'm going to approach that in that in that manner. I'm going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six. So if you would go go there with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Lord God, you are holy. Your word is worthy to be preached. It's worthy to be revered and studied. And You are so great, Lord. You do so many good things for us. Let us honor you today, Lord. Let us realize that we're in your presence. Fill this place with your presence. Lord, let us be open to your word. Let us say your will be done. Let us, let us have a clear understanding of your word and, and teach us and guide us, Lord. Let the, let the Holy Spirit go with us. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you that they would be pricked in their heart today. Thank you, Father, for this time and help me to do your will. Help me to honor you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to be looking at a, a larger group of Scripture that I normally do and that I have been doing going through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. So let us... Let's read that first. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking." Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto the Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, amen. Jesus is instructing us here in Matthew chapter 26, similar to how he did in chapter 5. That is in part by way of contrast, in contrast with the self-righteous Pharisees. But he moves from the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees that we saw in chapter 5 to now dealing with more of the practical living. We've seen how in chapter 5 the Lord pressed on correcting the false doctrine and the misunderstandings of Scripture. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, six times. And here in chapter 6, he's exposing their wrong living. So he's teaching us by way of contrast, the same way. We see that in verse 8, where he says, Be not ye therefore like unto them. Just a personal example, I remember as a young man, as a child, before I came to Christ, uh, growing up, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I saw there was a lot of problems in my family. I saw a lot of things that were, that were wrong, and I believe the grace of God even then was impressing upon me because I can remember being a young child and, and thinking and looking at people in my family and saying, Okay, that's what not to do. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to live like that. And this is kind of where the Lord is uh, showing us the Pharisees in that kind of light. This is what not to do. This is how not to be. Even though they may look good, this is what not to do, and here's why. So it's, it's a contrast there. And, and oftentimes... True doctrine is always put forth in contrast of false doctrine. Here, he's exposing their wrong living while directing us to right living. We also notice here that, there are two, that, that, that the two are directly connected. Not with a loose connection like a hose clamp, but false doctrine and false living have a solid, firm connection. They're soldered together. One who is soft and loose with taking the Scriptures will be soft and loose in how they live out their faith or lack thereof. A specific example of the Pharisees not getting it right, not getting doctrine right, and therefore not living right, is in John chapter 3. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who is called a master of Israel, he tells Nicodemus about the new birth and its necessity, and Nicodemus hasn't got a clue about what he's talking about. And in verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Art thou a master of Israel, and you don't know this? 
as if the Lord is somewhat perplexed. They were, they were living out their false doctrine. You see, false doctrine hides and cloaks the truth. That's the, that's the, the big danger of it. Because it attempts to hide the truth. It, it causes confusion. And so we see how important doctrine is and that we, we must get it right. We must get it right. But the practical living is the emphasis here. More specifically, targeting one's religious practice. Uh, practical living out your religion. Practical living out your faith. For James 2.22 tells us, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, speaking in regards to Abraham. You see, faith is practical. It's not some pie-in-the-sky mystical thing. It's not hidden away only in the spiritual realm. It is visibly seen. In the material and in the practicality of everyday life. So it's visibly seen. Now, let's, before we go too much further, let's look at an apparent contradiction that may cause us to stumble. And that's in Matthew, back in chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says this, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Okay, we read that, and then we read in verse one of chapter six, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward. So what's one to do? Do I do my righteousness before men so that they can be seen? Or do I don't do them before men so that I can be seen? Well, the issue, as always, comes back to the heart and the motivation. You, you see here clearly uh, the key. Jesus says in verse 16 of chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father which is in heaven. Whereas in verse 1 of chapter 6, Do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. In other words, that being the motivation, that being I'm just doing this to be seen to, to glorify myself. One glorifies self, one glorifies God. So we're actually to do both at the same time. A bit of a quandary, but it's actually kind of simple because it's our motivation that's key. One is attempting to glorify self. The other is glorifying God. We don't do righteous works to point to ourselves we do righteous works to point back to God and say, look what God has done. There ought to be a difference in our life that the sinners can clearly see, that the world can clearly see, and it ought to be somewhat perplexing to the world. Why is it that they're not doing the things that we do? What is the cause of this? And if we have a position of pridefulness, look at me. See, I'm not, I'm not like the, I'm, thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector. I fast, I, I give tithe, I pray. Then we come off as hypocritical to the world, which is exactly what it is. But an attitude that doesn't point to self, that doesn't even regard self, but yet walks out those good works walks out that practical faith is one that ought to be perplexing to the world. And that will cause them to be inquisitive. Even the example that the book of James gives 
on this runs parallel to the principle Jesus is putting forth. In James 2, 15 through 17, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, and notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. It runs parallel because Jesus is giving us the example in verses 1 through 4 of almsgiving. Uh, the, the word there in the Greek, in the original, is, is alms. Uh, but, the, but it's not just it's not just only that. It's not limited to alms. It, it, you really could say, don't do your righteousness before men to be seen of them. That's the principle that's been put forth. And that's the overarching principle of this entire chapter. And there are three subsidiary principles that we're going to look at. But when James talks about if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, okay, there's almsgiving involved there. We don't just say, in other words, we are to do this. This is something that we're called to do as Christians. We don't just say, okay, I see you're half starving. You know, I'll pray for you. And uh, I got to go. I'm going to go eat supper. Uh, but I'll be praying for you, okay? We don't do that. That'd be a hypocritical thing to do, wouldn't it? Um. But at the same time, this is a twofold uh, issue because he's pointing out that just like faith without works, what does it profit? What would it profit that person for you to even say you're praying for them if they're half starving? But what does profit is if you give them the necessity that they require. And then you also give them the spiritual meat. It's important to note that Jesus and James are not talking about earning salvation or, you know, anything like that. That's not the issue. He's not even really talking about the examples they give aren't even really genuine faith. They're, they're, they're pointing out what genuine faith is in contrast to hypocritical faith. So that's not, at, that's not really the issue. And as far as we are concerned for this message today, for this group of Scripture, there are two ways to be a hypocrite. Two ways to be a hypocrite. You can be a, hip, you can be a hypocrite by being a fake Christian, a false convert. Many people today believe they are Christian, yet they are not. And verses of Scripture, like this in Matthew 6, as well as many others, are meant to expose that and shed light on it. This is something we all need to listen and pay attention to. That's, in part, its purpose. Because... We don't want to be lost in fake religion. We, we want to be rebuked. If we're wrong, we, we need to know it because we won't be able to change. We don't want to be lost in fake religion. We don't want to be lost in fake Christianity, thinking that we're something when we're really not. Making ourselves, because then we make ourselves cut off from the genuine and cut off from genuine salvation which is what the Pharisees had done. And we don't want that for others either. And so we use the scriptures at our disposal to expose it. We must expose the false in order to reveal the true. And that is what the Lord Jesus is doing here in Matthew 6. Now, exposing the false, exposing the hypocrite in order to shed light on the genuine. We know from Scripture that there were those who called themselves Jews, but they were not. They were not Jews. We know from John 8, when in verse 33, those there appealed to their lineage and said, We are the children of Abraham. 
And Jesus told them in verse 39, Well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then in verse 44, he says to them, Year of your father, the devil. In Romans 9, verse 6, it tells us, They are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is a fake. In John 1.47, Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him, and he says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in one whom is no guile. In other words, behold a real Jew. In Romans 2.29, one is a Jew who is one inwardly the same thing with Christians all those things apply the same exact way and so you can be a hypocrite by by claiming or professing to be a Christian and not really being one that's one way not really believing therefore not really following Christ in that way a pretender a hypocrite and I would I would present to you today that that's worse than just being a flat-out unbeliever. Jesus said, better to be cold than lukewarm in Revelation. Because you see, you, you can fool others and then you end up fooling yourself. It's a real danger. Let's remember the word hypocrite is hypocrites in the Greek, which means an actor or stage player. Now, the second way you can be a hypocrite is you can be a hypocrite as a true believer and truly saved by being one who has gotten their priorities out of whack. One who has gotten mixed up and bogged down with the affairs of this earthly life. Easy to do. Because as Christians, we live and we move around in this world and things happen to us. Problems come and that we have to deal with. You know, we don't live the Christian life in a vacuum. We're not even really meant to live the Christian life on some, you know, mountaintop monastery where the world can't get to us. We're sent out to, to the world, aren't we? And we have an enemy who seeks to constantly to get us to look away from Christ. So I think sometimes you can be a true Christian and be in a state of hypocrisy. Maybe not understanding. I think younger Christians, it's, you're more susceptible to that. But it's not only them. A true Christian can be in a state of hypocrisy to some degree, but I do not believe you can be a Christian and stay that way. A true Christian is progressing forward toward Christ, being like Christ. It's not perfection, it's direction. A true Christian reads his Bible, reads the hard verses like Matthew 6 here, and takes it to heart, really looks at himself. A true Christian knows he needs the Word of God to guide him, to rebuke him as part of his sanctification. Job thirteen sixteen. He says, he also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Job 27, 8, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul. Proverbs eleven nine: an hypocrite with his mouth destroyeth his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered. James three seventeen: but the wisdom that is from above, is pure, then peaceable, 
gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is a very serious matter. And these words of Christ here in Matthew 6 push us deep into self-examination. And this is the intent. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually said that he thinks this is one of the most uncomfortable chapters in all the scriptures to read. Because it holds up a mirror before us and won't let us escape. And anyways, the Christian should always desire to know his or herself. We should always have that desire. David said to God, Lord, forgive me of my presumptuous sins, even the sins that I don't even yet know. We need to know ourselves. We need, we need these things. This is given to us, I think, as meat. This is, obviously, it's the Word of God, and it's um, beneficial for teaching and um, exhortation and all that. But this is more of the meat than milk, I think. It's a very serious matter. The Christian should always desire to know himself and wrestle with his own sin, his own failures, to flee from sin. Growth happens there. That's where growth happens. Now, the Lord gives us three illustrations here that have to do with practical living out our faith. And these, these are the only three, really. This touches every, every aspect of our living out our faith, of our religion. Now, I don't believe that these illustrations are meant to be exhaustive and that necessarily these are the only things we do, uh, but they, they are exhaustive in the principles because, you see, we have in verse um, 1 through 4, is dealing with almsgiving is the example, but the principle there is in your religion how that relates to other people around you. And then in verses 5 to 16, he gives the example of prayer. So the principle there is how in your religious, in your faith, walk, how you relate to God. So you have how you relate to the people around you, how you relate to God. And the last principle is found in verse 17 or 16 through 18. And it's the example he gives is fasting. And that one is how you relate to yourself. The mortification of sin. The walking out God's commands. A personal thing. So we have dealing with others around us, dealing with God, and dealing with self. On those three aspects is your entire, uh, that's all the aspects that have to do with your, with religion. And really that's not even um, specific necessarily to Christianity. That's with every, you know, even man-made religion, even false religion. That's the three aspects that exist. So they're not ex the, the examples are not exhaustive and that's all we're to do, but they are each a subsidiary principle that comes under the main principle that Jesus is teaching, which is doing, righteous, doing your righteousness before men or doing righteousness before God. To please men, to be rewarded by men versus doing your righteousness before God, to please God, to serve God, and then, therefore, to be rewarded by God. So the question is, the main, in the main principle, it begs the question, 
what is the primary motive behind the righteous act? So, okay, you're, you're prompted to do a righteous deed, to do a good work. What is your motivation behind that? You know, you, you hear people say, well, the Lord put it on my heart to do this. Is that just a catchphrase or is that the truth? That's the question. Do you have the Lord in mind or is it something else? So as I said, number one, the first uh, subsidiary principle here in, in verses one through four are the people around us. Number two, in verses 5 through 15, how you relate to God, how you communicate with God, worship Him, seek Him. Number three, how you relate to yourself, the mortification of sin, self-denial, bringing the desires of the flesh into subjection of the Spirit and the Word of God, verses 16 through 18 there. And then in verses 19 through 20, which is why I included these verses, we see the Lord tying the three illustrations together and shows us what our perspective must be. And then all of this touches the issue of rewards. Rewards from men or rewards from God. And that will point us back to Job 27.8. For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he hath gained... Oh, there's a gain. There's a gain when you seek to please men... But it's only superficial and it's temporary. So he says in Job 27, once again, For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul? It's ultimately a vain thing. So number one, how we live out our faith in regards to others. The example given is alms, which is charitable giving. But again, it's not limited to that. The principle is our faith in action in regards to other people. That's the principle. How we treat others, the things we do and say to others, the, illust- the, the illustration here or the example is giving of alms. And it's a good one because it highlights the element of sacrifice. No one could teach better than Christ. So he, th- this example is the perfect example. It's simply not limited to that, that's all I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. It highlights the element of sacrifice. And we, when we sacrifice, it must be genuine. We don't want to be like Cain and give a hypocritical sacrifice. You know, Cain thought his sacrifice was good. That's why he was wroth that's why he was mad that and you know he saw that Abel's sacrifice was better that God accepted it but when we give we want to it it needs to be genuine we don't want to just give something that we really don't need in other words it shouldn't be like you know I've got an extra hundred dollars I don't really need this here you go throw it in the collection plate give it to somebody whatever and then you go off thinking, you know, I did a good thing. Then really it was in vain. The sacrifice, the giving, it ought to cost us. That's why David said, I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. And ultimately, this giving or sacrifice, if genuine, it must be done not for men to see but for God to see because if we if it's not that then it would actually be love of self not love towards God not love toward fellow man that would be a hypocritical sacrifice now God promises here to reward doesn't he Every single time in each one of these illustrations, he brings up rewards. And so I think a lot of times the issue of rewards makes us uncomfortable. 
because we think that we don't want to be motivated by reward. And, and there is a, a, you know, a bad way to be motivated by reward, just you know, a selfish way. But it's not that we're trying to keep track and, okay, God owes me this and we're writing down everything we do. Maybe you're not, obviously you wouldn't do that um, literally, but there is a danger of doing that in our mind, like remembering those things. And so then we think that God owes us something. It's not that at all, but it's understanding that God is one who keeps his promise. If he says he's going to reward, then he's going to reward. And he says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I don't think the issue of rewards is wrong to bring up because God brings it up. He's promoting it here, not, not me. And, you know, we, we use rewards to motivate our children to do good. I mean, we don't want to just have um, negative reinforcement. There's also positive reinforcement. And so we do that with our children, and it works a lot of times even better than negative reinforcement. So it's not that we're keeping track or trying to earn God's grace. First of all, justification isn't even the issue. Salvation's not even really the issue. It, it could possibly be, you know, if you're an unbeliever and it's a hypocritical faith, but what I'm saying is that the issue really is rather God rewarding or blessing his people in this life, but especially in the next life because he says in verse 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And what is the treasure? The ultimate treasure is Christ himself. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But in faith, we believe that promise that God says he'll reward. We believe what he says in faith, and we let that guide our motive. Now, God says he's going to reward don't worry about what the reward will be. Look, if it's from God, it's going to be good. More than what man can give. So, we just simply have faith. I think that we can reduce it to that, like just believing that God is a rewarder. He, he says it. He tells us that. Now, in each of these three illustrations, the pattern is similar. The example is given, the contrast between the hypocrite and the genuine, and then the Lord speaks of reward. Now, the hypocrite's rewarded too. The hypocrite receives a reward from man. But in doing so, he's cut off from the reward from God. You can't have both of those rewards. And he says it, in another way, later on in this chapter, in verse 24 of, of chapter 6, at the tail end there where he says, you cannot serve God and mammon, the word money, but the same principle is there. You can't serve God and be a man pleaser. I think that's, the, that's where we can tie in the, you know, it being possible that a true Christian falls into a state of hypocrisy because we get kind of fooled that we can do both sometimes. But we can't. And so we don't stay there. We, we correct the error in our lives and we flee to Christ. So the hypocrite receives a reward from men. The genuine receives a reward from God. The genuine does the thing to please God. That's why he, he's directing the thing he's doing to God. So that's why the reward is from God. And God says it this way. Each time he uses the word openly. I thought that was interesting. He uses the word, God will, the, the thing that you do in secret to God, the almsgiving, the prayer, the fasting, all the three aspects, the things that you do, for fellow man, the things that you offer directly to God, and the things that you do in mortification of sin, fleeing from sin, 
repenting. All those things ought to be done ultimately to God, and he says God will reward you openly. In other words, God is not slack in the reward. God is not, it's not going to be like the reward that man would give, superficial, um, you know, not really all that it's promised, not all that it's, you know, chalked up to be. You know, because the world boasts of some really big-time things. The, the world boasts of, hey, you know, you do this, you're going to get money, it's going to be great, you're going to be happy, and it comes to deceive you, and it's never what it, what it says it's going to be. But the reward that God gives is you can't even, it's more than you can imagine. It's openly, even in the face of your enemies. So this is, this, the reward even is in contrast. The reward, it's in contrast to the ones who are motivated to be seen by others, to please self for selfish gain. He says he has their reward already. That reward is, it comes quickly. It's given quickly. It goes away quickly. They have their reward already. The good report that you got from others or the Facebook-like if that's what you're after, hey, that's what you got. That's all you're going to get. You will not get a reward from God. You're cut off. You received your treasure on earth where rust and moth eat up and thieves steal, where it's taken away quickly by some means. That's the opposite, see? That's the contrast of storing up riches in heaven. And you can't do both. If you're seeking riches here on earth, you may get some, but you won't in heaven. If you're seeking riches in heaven, you're trusting that God will provide, God will be your rewarder. You're not looking to man for what you can get from man. You're looking to God Knowing what God has to offer, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills, which is hyperbole. He owns everything. Looking to God, knowing that he is the one who owns it all. It's all in his possession. He can give it to whoever he wants to give it. Looking at it that way, we can see that that's definitely the better It's a vain because man doesn't really even have anything to offer. God owns it all. When we do a good thing toward another, when we give or serve of our time or give money, which we are to do, we're commanded to do these things. The motive is the key. If I'm up here preaching just because... I want to be looked at as some great preacher or I want to get people to like me or follow me, I might as well walk out this door right now. Because the goal is to exalt Christ. And I can't do that if I'm trying to exalt self. This is the singleness of I that he talks about later in this chapter. And in studying this, I finally got it. Like the singleness of I. It's all connected here with these three illustrations. It's connected with um, seek you first the kingdom of God. It's connected with you, you, you can't serve two masters. It's all connected, you see. The motive is the key. You can do a good thing and you can appear to be quite selfless. But if your motive is to please men, then ultimately, the truth is, when you're motivated to please others, you're really motivated to please self. 
because you're motivated to see what you can get out of others. And that exposes the hypocrisy because you're, you're not really focused on God, yet you're doing something in the name of God. And, if, and I know that God must hate that. So when we do a good thing to another, when we give or serve, the motive is the key. He says here, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand is doing. In other words, you don't need to have yourself in mind. Don't, don't, even, don't even dwell on it. Don't, don't give it any thought. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't have yourself in mind. Your motive is not to be seen or draw attention to yourself. Jesus puts forth this principle, in other words, in John 5, 43 and 44. And he says there, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You see, how can you believe? How can your faith be genuine, which you're, you're looking for honor from one from another? You're looking to boast one to each other. And you seek not the honor that comes from God only. I like that the word only is there. Because the truth is, is that real honor only comes from God. So to heck with honor from men. It's not even real. The second illustration, verses 5 through 15, has to do with our relation and interaction with God. The example given is prayer, which again I think is the best example or illustration because what is more personal between us and God than prayer? But again, the Lord is putting forth a principle that's not limited to prayer. Rather, it's one's whole relation to God on a personal level. The hypocrite prays, or rather pretends to pray. He may not realize he's pretending. But he prays to be seen and heard of men. And so therefore, he's not heard by God. Because he's not even really praying to God. Look, he says in verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues, in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. They come in, and they, they're prepared to give this long, it's very spiritual-sounding, high-minded prayer so that others will see them and give them praise. And so who are they praying to? Certainly not God. God doesn't hear a prayer to an idol. God doesn't hear a prayer to Baal. But he does hear prayers. Thanks be to God. He hears prayers that are genuinely offered to him, that really do look to him in faith. In our desperate need, he hears those prayers. And I know that for a fact because I've experienced it. But I don't rely on that experience because there might come a time when it seems to me that he didn't hear. So then what do I do? I go back to the scripture and then I know, I know that he hears prayers. 
In essence, the hypocrite's prayer, or so-called, is directed at man, not at God. He thinks, how can I sound so spiritual and righteous as to impress others? The scene that's described in verse 5 is they stand in the streets and synagogue trying to attract attention. Not so others will glorify God, but to receive glory for themselves. Now, we often do corporate prayer. That's the thing we do in church. Every church I've ever been in does that. That's normal to do. You know, we, we gather together. We just had corporate prayer several times this morning. Um, that's not a bad thing. You know, they were getting up and praying in front of everybody, and we do that. So we have corporate prayer among each other, but as always, the motive is the issue. Why am I being prompted to pray? Is our motive only to impress men? Then we will not impress God. If you stand to pray or speak a word and your thoughts are, okay, I don't want to sound stupid in front of everyone or I hope people think that this is good, then you're being self-conscious. Self-conscious. Whereas we ought to be God-conscious. This is something that I know I struggle with and I don't think I'm the only one but self-conscious rather than God-conscious and shame on us for that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get up here and look stupid. Of course. But if that's my motivation, then it's a waste of time. Most of us already have a lot of stuff on our plate. We work very hard. There's a lot of things we have to do. We might as well not do those things in vain. So self-conscious, self-focused, the Christian in his religious duties and good work should never be self-conscious, but rather God-conscious. You know, the greatest cause of our failure, th this principle that he's putting forth is the relationship with God. And the greatest cause of our failures is that we're constantly forgetting our relationship to God. We're constantly forgetting that even in the mundane things of life, we are in the presence of God. Whatever it is we're doing, God sees everything. We forget that our supreme goal in our life is and should be to please God. Again, that's the singleness of I. And he says if you have that singleness of I, everything's well with you. He speaks of that in verse 22. We too often live our lives unaware, forgetful of our relationship with God. That sounds weird, but that's really in essence what it is. Our relation to God and that we, that the things we do, the words we say, how we treat others, the words we speak always are impacting that relationship, either negatively or positively. So we must be God conscious, God aware. We must remember that God sees everything we do. He knows every thought. Hang this scripture on your wall. Genesis 16, 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. That was Hagar that said that. Thou God seest me. That needs to be our always a scripture that's at the forefront of our mind. Thou God seest me. God is everywhere. 
We must always remind ourselves that we are in His presence. You see, we can hide things from men, but not from God. Do not alms, do not pray, do not fast, do not your religious works of righteousness to please men. Why? Because you can fool men. You can fool yourself. That's the best outcome that you could possibly get. Is merely to fool everyone and appear righteous. And so the good we do is in vain and God won't regard it. Because it's not real. Now Jesus here gives a model prayer. That is God-centered and leads us to pray with His holiness and His love in mind. This is not a prayer merely to recite or remember. It's fine to do that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But it is more than that. It's a model for all prayer. Everything Jesus brings up in this prayer should be on our mind for all our prayers. His holiness... His preeminence, His provision, His kingdom, His will, His love, His forgiveness, and lastly, our responsibility. Let's look at the prayer. All those things are there. After this manner, verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's His holiness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. There's His will. Give us this day our daily bread. There's His provision. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's his love and our responsibility. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. There's his power and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's a model prayer. That's a prayer that's God-centered, not man-centered. I need to hurry up here. Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. The things that we think are so important, often it's an abomination to God. The things the world chases after are an abomination to God. The third and final illustration given has to do with our denying of self, how we deal with self. Jesus tells us we must deny ourselves, must be willing to take up our cross, must be willing to suffer for his sake, must be willing to be defrauded. This is speaking to the principle of the mortification of sin. This was previously touched on in verse 29 through 30 of chapter 5, where he says, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and that not all thy whole, and that thy whole body should not be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and that not thy whole body should be cast into hell. Flee from sin. Flee from sin. Take it seriously. So this third illustration is the principle of how you relate to self. Now, the example given is fasting. This one, I think, is the most ridiculous thing to do to please men. It's the most arrogant and pompous to do our fasting to be seen of men because really it has nothing to do with others. Others aren't corporately involved. We do corporate prayer. We don't do corporate fasting. Now, the interesting thing about this is what he says here, but thou when thou fastest anoint thine head and wash thy face, 
that thou appear not to fast, but unto the Father which is in secret. He says earlier that what they do is they, they disfigure their face. There is a religious group out there that they do corporate fasting, and they want everybody to know it. It's a time in the season that we're coming up on called Lent, and you'll see them. They'll have a, a black cross across their forehead to let everybody know they're fasting. Isn't that the opposite of what Jesus is saying to do here? Don't disfigure your face. Make it look like you're not fasting so that no one will even ask you about it, knowing that God sees you. And so I believe that the, the corporate fasting that the Roman Catholic Church does is wrong. And they have their reward, don't they? So we pray corporately. Others are involved in our alms and service to them as, because the others are the benefactors. But we don't corporately fast. I, I believe on this issue, it's more of a personal thing between us and God. We don't fast to show others how great ability we have to go without. Man, I've been fasting for, I'm dying. I'm fa I've been fasting for three weeks now. I just, oh, brother, I, I'm really having a hard time. That's not what we do. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, we don't mortify the flesh and flee from sin so that we can brag about it. I hadn't done that sin, you know, in so long. You know, look, I don't do these things. Look here, brother. You see these sins that you do? I don't do them. You know, we don't, we're not doing this to brag and, see, and, and, and to say how much sin I don't do or how long I've gone without eating. That in and of itself would be sin. Our self-denial must be from a dependency on God and a motive to please God. Knowing this, that without faith... It's impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six. The only time I've ever that I ever recall Jesus being impressed with someone is he marveled over their faith. In Luke seven nine, he marveled at the centurion's faith. In Matthew fifteen, Jesus said to the woman who was asking him, and she said, "Well, even the dogs get the crumbs of the table." And Jesus told her, he said, "Woman, great is your faith." He was taken aback. That's the only time I've ever seen Jesus impressed. So from a position of faith, we flee sin. Not as a, so we can brag about it. We deny self, believing and knowing, and this is the key. This is, this is the hinge point. We do these things from a position of faith, we deny self, believing and knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and that He will punish wickedness. Knowing those things, believing them wholesale, causes me to have a right motive. Then verses 19 through 21 is the conclusion of the matter. We must ask ourselves, what is our purpose where is our heart? The Lord gives us a practical, simple mode to gauge that. Who are we seeking reward from? Where do we look for treasure? What is our stock in? You know, they talk about you know, putting stock in something. Somebody might put stock in Walmart because they think that's a safe bet. I'm going to get a return in about 10 years. I'll have a nice chunk of change there. Where do we put our stock in? That will tell us where our heart is at. 
That's what he says. But lay up for yourselves, or let me go back to 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moss or moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is not meant to discourage us to the point of despair. It ought to, like I said before, maybe tan our hides. But it's not meant to discourage us to the point of despair. Maybe it ought to cause us to mourn, though. But where there needs to be correction and repentance, we do that thing. There's still hope. When the ship gets off course, we don't run it into the rocks. We right the ship, we change course. Ask yourself, why? Ask yourself, why am I doing the things I do? What is my goal? Where is my reward going to come from? Where is my treasure? If my treasure is Christ, and if I regard him as my ultimate reward, then Christ is in heaven, is he not? Seated at the right hand of the Father. As we speak, then my heart will be there. That's where my treasure will be then. My heart will be there, and that will be my motivation. Well, there's much more to speak on this, and Lord willing, we'll be able to later. Uh, this has definitely impacted me and uh, caused me to really examine my own self and motives, and I, I, I pray and hope that for each one of us here, it's done the same thing. Uh, the Word of God is more powerful than a two-edged sword, dividing into sunder into the bone and marrow, exposing the intents of the heart. And so I thank God for that. And uh, I just pray that you would be, uh, you would agree with that point. So, um, well, that's all I have. You're dismissed, and God bless you all.